Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm part of the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And Sharon, I'm very much looking forward to continuing the mini-series that we started last week. I, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, both uh, Kristen and Warwick you know, brought so much to our thinking about what's driving this crisis that we're currently finding and you know some of the the explanations that Warwick gave us around what is inflation I think are just so useful economists know exactly what they're talking about when they use those terms but I think many of us don't really know what that means and so in thinking about the cost of living crisis what's happening around inflation I think that episode just gave us some some of the foundational thinking that we needed um, but also went further than that in in explaining the economic foundations um, that we that we have to work with. I think in this series we'll come back to what is inflation and and perhaps also a bit of blue sky thinking about how we can start to do things differently. As our listeners know, Policy Forum Pod is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. You can visit crawford.anu.edu slash study to find out about some of the fantastic degree programs and short courses that we have on offer. So, Anna Greta, as, as we said, today we're continuing this mini-series on the impacts of the cost of living and the inflation crisis, but we're doing a bit more of foundation, bit more foundational thinking today about um, some of the real problems that this country faces and needs to resolve. Would you like to, to set the scene for this really important conversation we're about to have? Absolutely. I'm struck again, and I know this is probably getting repetitive for many of us, that that the that crisis often presents us with opportunity, and you know, particularly op- opportunities for change and new ideas. Last week, we went back to basics with Warwick McKibben and Kristen Sobeck for us to understand the current global economic environment and how the war in Ukraine, the effects of the pandemic, the natural disasters, and an historic economic narrative bubbling since the global financial crisis in 2008 have all combined to put pressure on the cost of living today. In our second episode of the miniseries, we are seeking to explore and understand the impact of these pressures on First Nations people across Australia and the pathway forward for economic self-determination. 
Self-determination is a right where all people are free to pursue their economic, social and cultural development without outside interference. Without self-determination, today's guest explains that First Nations people will continue to be second-class citizens in Australia, particularly as we are recording this show during NAIDOC week, with the 2022 theme being Get Up, Stand Up, Show Up. In our current economic environment, how do we create systemic change that empowers an economic self-determination framework for Indigenous Australians? How can voice, treaty and truth support in achieving this framework? And what are the pathways forward? Joining us today to explore these issues and more, we are joined by an inspiring, extraordinary leader from here at the Australian National University. Sharon, could you introduce our guest? I would love to, Anna We have with us today Peter Yu. And of course, Peter is an old friend of the pod, although we haven't spoken to him for quite some time. Peter is a Yaru man from Broome in the Kimberley region of Australia. He has over 40 years of experience in Indigenous development and advocacy in the Kimberley at the state, national and international levels. Peter was a key negotiator on behalf of the Yaru native title holders with the Western Australian State Government over the 2010 Yaru native title agreement. He was until recently Chief Executive Officer of the Yaru Corporate Group and is now, amongst the many titles that he holds, the inaugural Vice President of First Nations here at the ANU. Peter, welcome to the pod. It's fantastic to have you with us. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for inviting me. So this episode is part of our mini-series where we're looking at the social impacts of the rising costs of living and of inflation. And in this mini-series, we're looking at the impacts on people across a number of areas, including health, poverty and housing. But Peter, I wonder if we could begin with me asking how the rising cost of living is impacting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly in remote communities where we've seen some really shocking reports about the the phenomenally high prices of the most basic goods. The situation, I guess, is that um, people live in a very marginalised, impoverished position anyway, with largely the dominant form of income, of course, is some form of welfare payment. While we're looking at the immediate issue of the cost of living and the height. This is a kind of normal situation, uh, particularly in most rural and remote communities. And I'd say even in the more uh, urbanised environment as well too. Uh, I don't, I can't imagine it would be all that much different, um, but it's relative in the sense that you're talking about enormous logistic costs of freight, transport um, and other factors like that. So you already have a low income base. You already have a an inflated price because of these uh, logistical and other costs, transport costs. You, and, and then uh, you also have this question of accessibility or connection, uh, mainly largely with transport. So in, in the more remote and rural areas, of course, most of the food is probably flown in by freight or by uh, by truck. But then, of course, in urgent situations from time to time, and particularly during kind of times of crisis, I mean, with COVID and, and during the um, latter, latter part of the year, when roads get cut off by floods, um, supply is uh, not guaranteed. And then, therefore, if it has to be flown in or by some other means, uh, it, it then, of course, goes to another additional kind of level. I think fuel costs, you know, have given the vast distances people have to travel to access services and other facilities, um, it's just 
really uh, prohibitable in, in the sense that people can't afford. I suppose that what how people get by is that they usually probably pool their money, whatever money they can get if they need to go to town to buy supplies. Otherwise, if they're going to have to just rely on what's available in their local community store. Um, I don't have details of what the price is, but I know, you know, like five, ten years ago, you're already paying five dollars for a, for a lettuce. The, the real impact is really affecting, I would say, the kind of health and well-being of the communities. If you aren't able to access fresh vegetables and fruit um, and nutritious uh, kinds of um, foods, then you're largely re- relying on falling back on the kind of, you know, pretty basic kind of um, diets, uh, which is highly processed kind of foods, uh, tin foods, um, and probably you know, probably people flower and a lot of people make damper and stuff out bush. But um, I think that um, I, it's unimaginable. Um, and I really don't know how people do survive. I think there's some sense of genius in the way that people are able to uh, manage that. But, you know, I would suggest under great difficulty. Peter, what you've just described to us indicates so powerfully that while many Australians at the moment are really struggling with the the cost of living crisis that we're seeing, that for many Indigenous Australians, this isn't new. You know, you've, you've talked about over, over many years, the challenges that, that many people have faced. How would you describe the economic situation of, of Indigenous Australians um, in our country today and of, of First Nations communities? I don't think that we've advanced too far. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are some very good things that are happening from the point of view of um, the, um, the the developing kind of educated class of Aboriginal people who are now going to finishing high school and going to universities and getting various degrees in particular professions. So, you know, there's a lot of doctors and lawyers. I don't know many economists or accountants. So I'm, I'm presuming that there are some people out there. So I think that... Um, that um, um, and there are also people, of course, who are now um, buying their own homes. So there's a, there's a, a an emerging, I guess, um, growth in the Aboriginal middle class, um, if I might put it in those terms. But largely, the majority of people are excluded from the um, economy, um, Sharon. I would I would suggest uh, because we a number of things. I think largely uh, our lack of knowledge and engagement and experience in dealing in the economy. I think the fact that we've been the marginalisation and the historical kind of reasons for that uh, have continued to impact on that. I think while there are uh, resource agreements that have now happened um, between various uh, traditional and native title groups and large corporate mining companies, um, that's far and few between in the context of the majority of Aboriginal people uh, position. I think that the, um, you know, we're still very much, as I said before, co- there's a codependency relationship between the kind of uh, government bureaucracy and programs and the way that people engage in their daily lives. Um, so we uh, have, um, while we have an emergence and also emerging kind of um, entrepreneurial class of Aboriginal people as well in terms of small business and other businesses, that's growing, but I think that's all relative in terms of the, the kind of uh, balance. Uh, there is a, a lack of equity, lack of level playing field, and uh, um, not 
very much. A lot of the success has really been on the basis of Aboriginal people themselves taking the initiative and moving into business and getting things done themselves. The, 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 there hasn't been the kind of positive level of government intervention. There isn't the kind of uh, fiscal equalisation, if you like, on a uh, financial equalisation on, um, on a rational basis where there are large groups of impoverished peoples with low, low incomes. You know, I think that that is something that needs to be considered in the future context of um, um, uh, involving Aboriginal people in the local and regional and national economy. I think the what we have in a post-Native title um, and land rights era, Native title termination and land rights era, we have a considerable asset base that, that has been accumulated over the uh, last uh, 30, 40, 50 years, um, but we still have a major issue of, uh, of uh question of cash and, and, and access to capital. And um, and so I think that's a major problem. I mean, the, the in Northern Australia, you would venture to say something in the vicinity of 80, 90%, if not more, of Aboriginal people have a direct or indirect uh, interest in the land and other resource assets of Northern Australia. Nationally, it's roughly about 51 to 57%. But being able to activate those assets in a beneficial way to optimise some form of uh, economic return uh, is very limited at the moment. Not, notwithstanding that we have um, various uh, social impact investing um, direction and the ESG um, uh, considerations now, protocols that are being developed uh, in regards to the, the standards uh, required for um, uh, investors and investment uh, houses and major corporates, uh, that hasn't yet um, translated into a kind of a, uh, a measurable return, uh, you would say, that um, engages Aboriginal people in the in the mainstream economy. Peter, the economic situation of First Nations people in Australia really can't be separated from the history of genocide and dispossession and the ongoing process of colonisation. I'm wondering if you can talk us through those impacts for us. Well, I mean, if you're looking at it from a purely economic point of view, I mean, notwithstanding the kind of... Um, the injustices perpetrated by, you know, mass killings and, and massacres and and people dying of disease and being and being, you know, deliberately hunted and shot off their land uh, to pave the way for the advancement of the um, settler uh, economy. Um, you, if you were looking at purely from an economic point of view and looking at opportunity lost back to when um, f- first settlement occurred um, and and the lack of engagement of um, First Nation communities and the original people in the economy from that first date. Uh, That's, I'm not an economist, so what they would measure up to would be some considerable amount of money, I think. And um, you've had decisions like the uh, Timber Creek decision in uh, 2017, the High Court Timber Creek decision, Griffiths versus the Commonwealth, uh, which um, added an, an additional dimension to the nature of the calculation of impact on native title lands um, that go beyond just the immediate land impact, but um, um, raises the question of the uh, potential impact for cultural, or, um, cultural, and social, uh, and other uh, well-being matters that might have impacted as a result of the uh, destruction or desecration of um, uh, Aboriginal lands, special lands. So, this is a um, an interesting challenge for uh, the future in terms of the um, economists and the kind of um, people, the numbers people, as to what will likely be 
the context and criteria and setting for a, a compensation claim uh, between Aboriginal people and Australian, the Australian nation state um, as to what, how do we view A, the kind of lost opportunity, how do we view A, that in the context of um, compensation and, and, and uh, you know, see how, how is that dealt with from the point of view of restorative justice? I think there are interesting questions. I mean, we've had a number of different inquiries happening about the stolen wages, let alone compensation for the stolen generation. Uh, I think there's a hearing happening in West Australia at the moment about stolen wages where people basically uh, were treated as slaves and were not actually paid uh, their due um, uh, their due entitlements in terms of the value of their, their work and their output. So Aboriginal people, um, you know, have contributed to the establishment of major industries um, uh, throughout the, the, the history of settlement, but have not been adequately compensated. So in, in every in every kind of situation, uh, there's been a, a, a deliberate attempt to undermine the nature of appreciating the value of Aboriginal people's contribution and, to the economy. And, and, and of course, the worst way possible of that is is to exclude people from the economy, I think. Um, I've raised an example on a number of occasions where I think it's a living example today where we have in the Pilbara, which is the uh, epicenter of wealth generation through the um, export of the iron ore. And in the middle of that, and it's also, of course, uh, drives the economic, it's the economic powerhouse of the nation as far as uh, contribution to the kind of fiscal and financial well-being of the country. But in the middle of that is a, um, is in Robin is a, is a prison which, with the majority of Aboriginal faces. And it's, it's hard to juxtapose that, uh, it, that kind of um, imagery in, in your mind that here you have this enormous wealth capacity um, generation and in the middle of it you have the traditional owners, the majority of those people sitting in that prison are traditional owners on their own country, largely a lot of them are in their own country. I think that's a that's a classic example of where there is this form of economic apartheid um, that is that has been the 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 process of the attempt to um, undermine and dismantle Aboriginal society not only from the genocidal uh, practices of, of colonisation but it's also been very deliberate uh, in the in the way of excluding people from uh, the economy um, and. Um, we're a very wealthy country, as we all know, and uh, um, we have to ask ourselves also, why haven't we been able to solve uh, many of the uh, social and other health uh, ills that we have in the community? Things that are um, have been solved in other third world countries, uh, our circumstances, some health areas that's equivalent to um, an under, underdeveloped country in that regard. So you have to ask yourself why. I think it continues while the effort to change this is largely coming from the Aboriginal community. Um, this uh, scenario I'm describing is still very much prevalent. Peter, I'm reminded by the conversation we had with Virginia Marshall recently and the conversations we've had with a number of other thinkers around the importance of integrity and truth-telling and, and really confronting some of the images that are part of colonisation to understand how we can do things better. You've said that without the development of an economic self-determination framework, Indigenous Australians will continue to be second-class citizens in their own country. Can you explain what you mean by economic self-determination? Well, I, I mean the fact that um, what I've just described in terms of our current context 
is where we've come from. And I don't see that um, for all of the investment that going into currently and historically has gone into the Aboriginal welfare program, because that's what it is, it's a welfare program. Uh, well, while we do need a, a kind of safety net measure to be able to ensure there is a developing um, equitable position in regards to normal citizenship, entitlement, rights and interests. I don't think that we will ever achieve that equity until such time as there is this um, economic self-determination, economic sovereignty, what I call. And I think that's essential. Uh, and it's not only essential for the well-being of um, the Aboriginal community uh, from a health and well-being perspective, but and also from an, a healthy economic perspective, but it's also about uh, its impact on local and regional and national economies and the contribution that Aboriginal people can bring to uh, the nation um, in respect to their contribution. And I think that um, there, there has to be some um, reconciling, some reconciliation, some economic in, uh, reconciliation that is large part of the, the response in any uh, uh, formal settlement or arrangement between the nation state and, and the First Peoples. I think the question is that uh, historically we, we haven't so far been able to achieve that and we continue to lurch from crisis to crisis and failed attempts from failed attempts. I think the uh, what we need to do is to now in this uh, new developing kind of uh, era of discussions of a formal settlement arrangement, uh, particularly now that the new Labor government since their election in uh, May 21 have uh, pronounced the nature of the constitutional reform and also the um, uh, the Macarata, setting up the Macarata Commission and then uh, through truth-telling and then treaty negotiations, is that we need to contemplate this question of what happens the day afterwards as a way of engaging uh, the Aboriginal community in, a, in exploring uh, what are the fundamental um, institutional reforms that need to happen what are the structural reforms in both in terms of the infrastructure required, in terms of the programs required, things like the financial and fiscal um, particulars that relate to uh, Aboriginal ownership and Aboriginal sovereignty of the nation and how that is to be uh, designed and interpreted within a formal um, relationship structure. I think that uh, we have to look at precedences that might have been set elsewhere uh, in the other, uh, you know, First Nation experiences in colonised countries, um, in Canada, in um, you know, uh, New Zealand, and uh, and the US, amongst um, where we are familiar with some of those experiences, but also there are other countries we need to learn from about um, setting up uh, those institutions that can work with Aboriginal corporations to deliver that. Um, form of um, um, economic independence and equity. But important in that is building the kind of governance and management framework and fill, uh, breaching that capability gap, uh, sorry, closing that capability gap um, that builds that degree of competence um, and, uh, and experience for Aboriginal people to own and run their own affairs and businesses and to manage their own investments and to uh, ultimately, I guess, manage their own risk in that regard. I think that's where we have to move to, but we, we're not there. We've got a long way to go. But there are important um, examples of where this is starting to happen. I uh, recently spoke to one of our um, distinguished international guests from uh, from Canada, from the Harold Keller, the chairman of the Financial Management Board in Canada, 
uh, set up under the Financial uh, Fiscal Management Act uh, there, and uh, it's an attempt to help to drive this kind of uh, economic uh, independence and sovereignty in First Nation communities in, in Canada. And, uh, you know, he, he one of the comments he made was that um, uh, in the repatriation in 1982 of the Canadian Constitution from the UK, one of the things that wasn't considered were issues associated with setting up the financial institutions and structures uh, that would guarantee the nature of income and revenue and, and uh, economic independence. And I think that that's a good lesson for us to contemplate and to, to understand and learn better how we might um, um, do that. So while I, while we don't want to take away from the very particular propositions that are being discussed as to what might be put in a, um, in a referendum uh, in terms of setting up the voice, uh, we have to um, think about this question of what happens the day afterwards. What are the suite of uh, legislative reform measures that need to take place that includes infrastructure, that includes structural change uh, in terms of organisations uh, that, again, um, um, you know, to, um, to be able to address this issue. And that's a great spot for us to pause and perhaps give some thought to what happens the day after. We're going to take a really short break now and we'll be back in just a moment talking further about economic self-determination. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Peter Yu, and before the break, we began to talk about the critical importance of self-determination for Indigenous Australians. And Peter, this, of course, was the focus of a recent symposium hosted by you and by the First Nations portfolio here at the ANU, Maramaramura, or Creating Pathways. Um, And we want to start to draw out some of the things that you talked about in, in that symposium. Um, and of course, before the break, you you mapped out so powerfully for us the the kinds of policy failure, what you've referred to as a kind of economic apartheid um, that has been ongoing in this country for many many decades, um, really since since the arrival of of white people and the di- beginning of dispossession. Um, and you've mapped out the the trauma and the policy failure. Peter, before the the break, you referred to the processes of truth-telling and a voice, and I wanted to ask you about how we begin to build trust as a way forward. Is the adoption of the Uluru Statement from the Heart the way to do that, and how do we begin to think about 
the day after the statement has been adopted to ensure that we we keep building trust and can give Indigenous peoples a, a reinsurance, a, an assurance that they can trust a system that has betrayed them so badly? It's a very good question, Sharon, and um, trust is fundamental um, to, to all of this. And I the, the whole purpose of the um, Uluru Statement from the Heart and, and the uh, proposed um, constitutional recognition um, and establishment of the voice is the basis, it's the foundations of this trust, of this new trust moving forward. And I think it is a challenge for Australians to contemplate how that trust might be played out. But, you know, I think I, think, I get a sense of feeling that there is a... Uh, a growing sense of weariness uh, in the Australian community about the fact that there hasn't been this trust, the fact that the, we've uh, all, we've dealt with the, the major kind of deficit issues and people are asking questions and particularly younger population are asking the question, why is this necessary and why is this continuing to happen? So I think there is a sense of optimism, certainly in, from my perspective, that um, uh, there is a growing need and, and it's, it's a kind of, I'm not a social... Um, media kind of person, but it, I think it's kind of ironic. Um, while there are a lot of negative things, social media, I think, in fact, social media has um, really uh, brought to bear some level of influence in respect to a greater exposure of the issues as they happen on a timely basis um, that um, has uh, brought uh, ordinary Australians into the kind of um, situation that raises the question about this uh, inequity and, and continuing injustice you can't really get away with much these days without somebody having a camera rolling, um, photographing some particular instance that uh, raises question with that, and then followed by um, you know uh, hundreds of, if not thousands, of comments about it, and um, which creates a kind of um, environment of, um, of question and challenge, and that's happened in the Aboriginal space as well in terms of our relationship. So, but but. But notwithstanding that, I think that um, the demographics still remain the same in terms of the, the real lack of uh, personal uh, exposure to the Aboriginal kind of uh, issues. It's not an Aboriginal problem. It's a, it's a national problem. It's a problem of the nation. And, it's, and I think that's that uh, I think the referendum will clearly demonstrate that um, an Aboriginal um, leaders have said that, you know, we can't do it without you. You know, you need to stand with us in doing this. And, but I think that, you know, since the 67 referendum, since all the major kind of policy and legal and political milestones that have happened in the last 50 years of public policy um, change, you know what? The sky hasn't fallen in, has it? Previous Deputy Prime Minister um, Fisher talked about bucket loads of extinguishment and talked about, you know, people talked about uh, negative deficit scenarios that haven't occurred. The sky hasn't fallen in. Yes, that we have a complicated process to navigate in terms of the way the legislation is structured uh, and the way that that is then manifestly um, transferred into action on the ground and to to derive the appropriate the right benefit from it. Against that backdrop, the sky hasn't fallen in, but against that backdrop, people are seeing the unacceptable levels of continuing incarceration and recidivism levels in our general population, Aboriginal population, and particularly also in the youth population and. There's been a lot of coverage about youth suicide, and I think that um, um, people can relate to that because that's also happening in mainstream society as well too, uh, that we have the unfortunate case of many young people taking their own lives. And uh, that's, 
you know, it's it's extremely tragic and um, has great sort of sense of emotional response from families and from others. And so it's not a black and white thing. The the kind of sense of um, uh, effect and influence and tragedy and emotion that comes with it, I think um, many people feel that today. So they can they can equate that when they see an Aboriginal situation. It's no, long, no longer at an arm's length situation. Uh, where it's a them and us kind of situ- you know, um, a scenario. And that happens to various occasions at the time because we unfortunately, the, the other form of the you know, social and other forms of media uh, continue to, to play the kind of controversial issues as being the key kind of cover story of the day. But I think this is balanced by social media. So um, I think that the, the other thing is that there has to be government leadership in building that trust. There has to be, and, I, and I, I know that that has to fit within the kind of normal political cycles. You would imagine that in the current circumstances as uh, following the, um, the the Labor government's commitment in relation to those, uh, the Uru Statement and the three key, key touch points arising out of that, that there would need to be, um, in, in all reality, um, those reforms in some way or not, the measures have to be accommodated within the first half of the, the current political cycle um, so that, again, we have to convince the community that um, the world isn't going to isn't going to collide and, and, and the sky isn't going to fall in. And, in fact, um, it becomes part of our norm. Uh, but what we have to do is to also um, expose what the, um, the truth of the ongoing contribution that Aboriginal people can make so, uh, to the economy and to the lives of other Australians. An example would be, you know, the new kind of developing green economy in terms of the um, renewables and, and offset programs. I mean, we know that we have a significant number of Aboriginal land and sea ranges that are managing, you know, caring for country, um, and uh, particularly through the kind of um, fire-burning methodology uh, um, around the country, initially in the north with Savannah burning, but now in the kind of uh, right around the country and uh, Groups, Aboriginal groups, traditional owners in the south are doing exactly the same thing and doing some other fantastic work as well. You know, the the, the idea that um, using the kind of uh, customary knowledge base uh, to engage with Western science methodologies, A, to protect the country uh, within this hotly disputed area of climate change, but at the same time get an economic return from engaging in that, I think is an example of where um, we can demonstrate that not only are we the traditional owners and custodians of the of the natural estate, but we're also, you know, the custodians for the national estate on behalf of all Australians. I think that's the kind of um, uh, example I think we should be um, exposing and we should be marketing and saying that um, that's, a, but that's an example of a contribution to the well-being of the country and the environment and how we're playing our part in relation to climate change. There are other, other ways of doing that in terms of managing biodiversity and looking at the question of uh, biosecurity issues. Uh, there are those things as well, but uh, as, as a kind of simple example, I suppose that's a, a way or in which the trust can be built, you know, I think. But it's, it's, it's not going to be an easy sell, but I think it's happening. Mm. No, I, I think we are really beginning to learn, and I hope as a country we're increasingly understanding the importance of celebrating First Nations knowledge, which uh, has transformative power. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about compensation. 
Sir Tar Mark Solomon, a distinguished Maori leader who's been deeply involved in the process of securing compensation from the Crown in New Zealand to Maori peoples, asked the question about uh, economic self-determination and economic empowerment. And I wonder if we can learn what we can learn in the Australian context from that economic compensation model in New Zealand. Compensation is not a separate thing from the nature of economic empowerment, in my view. Compensation is a is a right that we have, uh, given the kind of nature of our historical experiences and the atrocities. I mean, when George III provided those instructions uh, to Cook in relation to um, uh, treating with the natives, I think it was the term, uh, and then we opted out of that instead of um, put in the repugnant notion of terra nullius, an, an empty country, nobody here. Um, a clear lie, a clear mistruth, uh, and something that has to be addressed that is the foundation of the settlement of this country. That has to be addressed. It can't be. For the, for the soul of the nation, for us to look at ourselves where we sit today and where we sit within the context of the global nature of our um, positioning with other countries, we have to deal with the truth of the issues. And that's what truth-telling is all about under the Makarata Commission. But, we, but compensation forms a very large part of the reason why. And that's also not just a the right thing to do politically, but it's also something that has now uh, come to the fore as a result of the ongoing uh, legal battles that have been had by Aboriginal people. Um, Harold Callough um, made another comment when he said one of the key uh, hereditary chiefs in Canada said, you know, after a number of different um, uh, high court decisions, you know, gee, we're getting tired of uh, winning all these um, all the, all these um, legal challenges, um, which demonstrates that that's an ongoing struggle. I mean, if you look at Timber Creek, uh, it's provided a new basis for quantifying the nature of impact on native title on other means other than just impact on land. And um, there are two now current cases, I believe, in the federal court. One is the Gumach claim by Gallery Mapingu and his clan up in East Arnhem Land and go for the destruction of cultural and other sacred sites with the establishment of the, um, the bauxite alumina uh, operations up there uh, by Rio Tinto. And also there's a claim by uh, a small group of Yungar people in the southwest of Western Australia to federal court as well for compensation. I don't think they're directly related to Timber Creek, but what they what that does indicate is that there are growing um, uh, there's a growing movement and interest of people. Governments uh, in 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 1994 negotiations between Paul Keating and the Aboriginal leaders uh, in regards to the Native Title Act, um, Keating uh, indicated that the Commonwealth would. Um, pick up 70% of compensation claims and native title claims and the states would carry 30%. I don't know that that's actually happened. Uh, but we've also had recent legislation in um, uh, in the Northern, sorry, in the Victorian Parliament with the, um, the Jury Commission setting up of the Treaty Authority, the independent umpire, uh, to look at the question of the, of the negotiations for a settlement in Victoria. And part of that is setting up a um, compensation well too. So um, we need 
how to quantify that compensation is going to be the interesting question. I've mentioned previously the uh, the lost opportunity um, and the and the necessity to contemplate compensation since our first settlement. There, of course, is um, under the Native Title Act the uh, impacts of the interest of traditional owners on their lands and that's compensation. You know, the question has to be asked, are we going to wait for further case law studies to be um, developed and precedents to be set in the High Court? Or is uh, the government going to look at what a political settlement might look like uh, in terms of compensation? And compensation should be seen within the broader context of uh, economic sovereignty because the the nature of any final settlement has to be in perpetuity. So the ability for um, the traditional owners to have an independent uh, kind of uh, revenue income base uh, to be able to uh, equally balance, uh, well, I guess, the, to have the fiscal and financial equalisation um, framework developed so that there is a very specific recognition of what those uh, entitlements are as it relates to our civic rights as Aboriginal people. Uh, matters, they're not easy, but um, will need to be addressed in my view. And again, what are the um, institutional, what does the institutional framework look like that is able to maintain this in perpetuity? Peter, recently at, at the symposium that, that we mentioned, um, the Muramuramura or Creating Pathways Symposium, you had a, a number of um, you know, in- incredible thinkers and doers from across Australia um, and, and across Indigenous Australia. And I wonder if you could talk us through some of the initiatives um, that were discussed at that symposium or that, that you see more broadly that are currently playing out and where we're seeing Aboriginal self-determination and Aboriginal sovereignty starting to, to, to take root or to, to steam forward and that give us pathways forward. Are you able to talk us a f- through a, perhaps a few examples that we could look to um, to see how we might do things better? Well, as, as I indicated previously, I think the um, a lot of the initiatives are coming from individuals, Aboriginal individuals themselves and their own uh, businesses. I mean, um, uh, Leah Armstrong from First Nations Capital, I think, is uh, – classic example of, in terms of this whole this uh, question of um, uh, access to capital um, but uh, um, how to kind of look at more the question of um, addressing the social licensing for uh, impact investment strategies I think there's a there's still a fundamental need I think to mentor Aboriginal um, businesses. Uh, in a way where we can develop the kind of um, the the kind of acumen and expertise needed to do this, but some of the examples, I suppose, is you know come through the kind of um, indigenous procurement policy position and uh, um, the supply nation and the kind of the the, the ability for Aboriginal companies. Um, to be able to access a you know, preferential tendering kind of processes, um, I don't have all the figures in front of me at the moment, but I'm you know there, it's it's risen quite dramatically over the last you know five or ten years. Peter, this conversation has has just raised you know so many issues around where we see both deep policy failure, but also the need for fundamental change in 
relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia and the extent to which that burden of change really falls to non-Indigenous Australians um, rather than shifting more burden onto Indigenous Australians to, to fix the problems that have been created. And as we think through and talk through those issues, I wonder whether we can achieve the kinds of change that that you've been mapping for us within the kind of economic system that we have, or whether we really need greater transformational change and whether we need an entirely new way of thinking that brings in far more fundamentally um, Aboriginal approaches or Indigenous approaches to thinking about the structure of our economy and, and the structure of our society. And I mean, that's a very big question, but I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that. You know, can we can we tinker with the edges of what we've got or do we need very broad transformation? I, I think we need both. I think there is there, there are ways that we can tinker at the edge and make quite dramatic changes without any major um, legislative reform uh, agenda issues. I think the um, in the current the current infrastructure we have is the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation, which of course was established as one of the uh, trilogy responses to the Keating government's response to Mabo 30 years ago, um, and also the Indigenous Business Australia. They're two kind of key national organisations, um, and um, I think that. Um, um, there's also the land fund that comes with the responsibility of the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation. I think um, they, in in uh, 2018, I think it was, there were amendments to that act. And previous to that, you know, the, there was an annual drawdown from general accounts setting up the kind of fund. And uh, it was roughly at about $2 million over the last 40 years because they'd been accumulating, you know, very minimal returns from government bonds at about 4% or something like that until they changed the law and then put it into the future fund and it's been driven home how successful that's been and uh, basically doubled its kind of return in the last four or four years compared to the last 40 years. So, you know, uh, that's that's an example of a small tweak um, that... Um, um, was required. I think the other thing was, you, for instance, similar to the model in Canada that I mentioned before, the Financial Management Board um, or Fiscal Management Act, but the board set up under that act was the ability to, it's kind of an opt-in, opt-out from the normal Indian affairs legislation. So it's working with communities who want to take more of an economic development approach towards their business on their lands and their communities and how they might want to activate and use their particular assets they've been able to accumulate uh, post the native title and uh, land rights kind of uh, determinations. And um, But a, an a component part of that is the role of ORIC, uh, the Office of the Registrar of Indigenous Corporations, which operates similar to ASIC uh, here in, in Australia, and that is a regulatory kind of uh, organisation uh, that has to, that looks at the obvious uh, compliance requirements, governance compliance requirements. Now, in the Canadian version, it's there. It's it's Australia's a deficit model, but in Canada, it's a more affirmative kind of supportive model where that works within the financial management board and under the Finance Fiscal Management Act, where it actually works with member 
communities and bands and groups who decide to opt into this process to assist them with their developing and growing competency in the uh, governance and management of their business. Whereas here in Australia, we, 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 we have that deficit model where it's about penalising the nature of that. There are some training programs, I, I know that there are there, but they're, they're minuscule and irrelevant compared to what you can do to the, to the counter uh, measure of being able to build that degree of competence um, in, uh, in the organisation. So, so that's certainly you can do things like that today. There's not there's nothing stopping you, and there needs to be positive intervention by government. Not at the moment, I think the policy position from the previous government was that it sits under economic development sits under the whole um, framework of closing the gap. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to uh, achieve um, any great kind of uh, miraculous outcomes from that. That needs to be seen as it's a completely separate um, responsibility and uh, task to be able to complete. But under that, the, the foundational issues are go more back towards the kind of whole compensation, truth-telling and treaty requirements because it can't, you can't have those processes happen and just fall back to the existing system that we have in place now. It would be unimaginable and uh, intolerable that that was, that was to happen. You, you would need to frame this in a more modern and contemporary context uh, that clearly defines what self-determination and economic sovereignty is about. And that is about the institutional, indigenous institutional capacities to be able to manage and undertake these various things themselves. That's why you need to have um, foundational issues uh, very much part of it. You can do both at the same time. There's no problem. So I think I think that's what um, we need to be working towards. Peter, this has been an extraordinary conversation. You have given us so much to think about and I think so powerfully mapped the things that we can and should do immediately um, as well as the, the longer-term issues that we need to address as a matter of urgency. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights. It's been an absolute privilege to talk with you. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Anna Greta, what an extraordinary conversation that was with Peter. I think he so powerfully outlines the ways in which we need to completely shift our thinking and the way First Nations peoples are, are positioned in Australia. We need to move beyond what Peter describes as that codependency. We need to move beyond um, thinking about a welfare approach, a deficit approach to the kinds of new ideas that Peter lays out for us. Sharon, I'm, I'm going to come back to the sorts of elements of hope that we've found creeping their way into the conversations we've had since the 21st of May and since our federal government here in Australia changed. And I feel like we can have these conversations. The conversation that Peter brought us, the ideas, are, are so fundamentally important to any notion of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples across Australia. They're absolutely essential to, to the conversations around the Uluru Statement. And yet I feel like the space to have these conversations is really just beginning to open. Uh, and I, I really hope that the listeners enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and the ideas I know will percolate along in my mind going forward. Look, I, I agree entirely. And I, I think about, you know, what we've spoken about before on the pod, Anna Greta, is that very first sentence of Prime Minister um, Albanese's victory speech on the 21st of May when he immediately spoke about 
um, adopting the Uluru Statement of the Heart in full. And I think that sets the scene for us to be, a- to be able to talk in ways that are um, infused with hope and optimism. And I think Peter's point today is so important too. What happens the day after? And we are now at the days after. Um, so what do we do and how do we continue to act and to make this real? And of course, Anna will keep coming back to some of these issues, but I think today's episode sets the scene for this mini-series so powerfully. Um, when we are thinking about cost of living crises, when we're thinking about the ways in which um, our the structure of our economy impacts on all of us, we also need to have front and centre the way in which it impacts on First Nations peoples. Um, and if we don't do that, we will fail ourselves, we will fail as a country. So we'll keep having these conversations. We will have another episode in this mini-series next week when we're talking um, about issues around the impacts of the current crisis on health, on wellbeing and on the health system. And Anna Greta, I think you might be jumping the mic that next week. I'm looking forward to asking you some questions. Yeah, well, I have to say, I think, Peter, you actually touched on a few of the issues that will no doubt come up next week. And I'm really much looking, very much looking forward to that conversation. This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we will leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've talked about in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and do let us know what you're thinking about the kinds of conversations we're having on the pod by leaving a review. We love to read them. You can find us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net, or you can join our Facebook group and you can find us by just popping Policy Forum Pod into the Facebook search bar. We will look forward to continuing these conversations next week, but from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, I look forward to seeing you next week. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.